We're now joined by Jerome Hoffman, Emeritus Professor of Medicine, and Hemel Kanzaria, Clinical Fellow at the University of California, Los Angeles, to discuss their article on the intolerance of error and the culture of blame as drivers of medical excess and too much medicine. Hi, Jerome. Hi, Helen. Good to talk with you. Hi, Hemel. Hi, Helen. Nice to be here. So in your article, you begin by talking about some of the general drivers of overdiagnosis and mention um, financial and commercial issues, which I guess we've heard a lot about, um, particularly in the BMJ as we've been plotting this um, Too Much Medicine uh, campaign. But you want to talk about something a bit different. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think those financial incentives are an important aspect of medical excess. However, you know, what we're really focusing on here is a culture of blame that goes on in our American system and elsewhere, as well as a widespread intolerance of uncertainty in clinical medicine. We think there is this other element that's at least as important and that goes along with it that has received much too little attention. And those, that's the things that uh, Hamill was just talking about. A fear of uncertainty and this uh, tremendous culture of blame. So unpa- unpack those those for us. Tell us about what what do you mean by intolerance of uncertainty? Sure. So you know, uncertainty is inherent in every aspect of clinical medicine. I mean, from how we decide to define a disease, uh, which can be quite arbitrary or changing over time for conditions like hypertension and diabetes, um, to how we decide to work up. Uh, patients' signs or symptoms that could indicate potential disease. Even once we establish a diagnosis, there's uncertainty in how we might best proceed, what uh, procedures uh, or what management strategies we might undergo uh, with a patient. Because of this, uncertainty is really an essential component to all of medical decision-making, and that creates a very challenging, um, challenging situation to provide the best care possible. But we're so afraid of not knowing what we do, of not knowing for sure, that we've managed to fool ourselves into believing that there's a perfect way. And perhaps even more worrisome, we've fooled the public into believing that. And, you know, I think that this intolerance of uncertainty has also led to oversimplification of care. It's led to sort of if there's any possibility of disease, we should do something about it. If there's any doubt, do the test. If it could you know, help one patient, it should be, everyone should get it. And that, that leads to the really important concept of what are the harms of commission. So imagine that you, there's somebody out there who has cancer and we talk about, well, why not do the test? Let's do the test. We'll find the person who has cancer. Before we do that, we have to ask a, a question that we rarely ask, which is, what are the harms of doing that test or giving that treatment once we found disease. One thing as a society, as both physicians and, and patients, we underestimate the impact of false positive findings. We underestimate the impact of incidental findings um, and, of and of overdiagnosis. So finding, you know, finding what we call a disease, but may not actually go on to affect patients in terms of clinical outcomes. So how did we end up in this position? Have have we as doctors or have we as a, a human society always wanted to minimise uncertainty? How have we come to what yeah. to feel compelled to look into the uncertain with tests rather than leave it be or wait and see? 
Well, I think there's, first of all, increased reliance on technology. There's also the, it's there. I mean, because we can do daily labs in a hospital, it's, it's just easy to do. Because the MRI machine is now available and there, our instinct is just to do it. It fits into the culture of doing more. But I think, it's, I think that's really a profound question, Helen. I, I really do. I, you know, why did, why did we create all sorts of myths 3,000, 10,000, 100,000 years ago about um, who's causing the thunder? When there are things that scare us, disease scares us, death scares us, cancer scares us, and we, we're not sure where it is, is it around, who's going to get it, we start, um, we get a little desperate in the same way that we got desperate when lightning struck. We saw lightning and we didn't know what caused it. We made up all sorts of mythology about that. Um, I, I th do think this is a, a very primal human need is to try to... Um, allow bind our anxiety about uncertainty and then we throw in a couple of these large cultural notions that uh, first of all if i'm examining you and i'm asking you questions to try to find out whether or not you have cancer well you know no matter how good and experienced i am it's just my opinion and who knows if that's any good and who knows if i can transmit it to hamill and if he'll do better or worse but a test, my gosh, that's objective. That's a number. That gives us an answer that we like to hang our hats on. So we have this mythologic belief that tests are objective, even though we actually have proven over and over and over again that they are not neither reliable nor accurate in many, many cases. Just for and is that, is that tied in with this concept of blame that you then come on to talk about, that in a way, if you do a test and a test is positive, um, medico-legally or perhaps even in terms of the weight on your own conscience you think well the test says so and that as you say that's an objective thing whereas if you're giving an opinion you're sort of I guess in a way leaving yourself open to criticism. Um, absolutely. absolutely and I, I think that um, malpractice fits very well into this you mentioned medical legal risk and that uh, continues the philosophy of, you know, we fear omission. Um, if we mal physicians feel they lower their own medical legal risk by doing tests, we would like to a little bit downplay the the importance of the legal risk, and we can get back to that a little bit later. But certainly, it fits in perfectly with cultural blame. But I'd like to go back for a second and um, say that you gave the example: if you did the test and it was positive, I think more often people think about if I did the test and it was negative, now I'm off the hook. I didn't think you had cancer, but if in fact you have cancer and we later find it, somebody can say that must have been a misjudgment on your part. But if I did the test and it didn't show cancer, then you're in pretty, I'm in pretty good shape. It wasn't just my opinion, the test said it. I can't be blamed because a great test didn't give us the answer. The flip side of that is what happens when the test is positive. If the test did harm by falsely diagnosing you with cancer or diagnosing you with something else that was an incidentaloma or overdiagnosing you with cancer, if all of that happens, the harm will, won't be today or tomorrow. It'll be somewhere long down the line. And no one will remember that we got into all this problem just because I did an unnecessary test. If, if, for example, I, you get cancer from radiation from a CAT scan, it won't happen for 20 years or 15 years. 
Who's going to blame me? It is, it is in the interest of physicians to overdo things. It's just not in the interest of their patients. So tell us how the defensive medicine might fit into that or why, why it's perhaps less important than we think. You know, we do think it will be necessary to fix um, the medical legal system in America, for example, and, and other you know, systems that are like the one we have here. However, and, the, and just to stress, they, those systems so dramatically point a finger of blame whenever there is a problem. And they uh, underpin uh, the notion that a bad outcome must have meant a bad process. So they, they really are, it's, it's a, these malpractice systems like in America, we don't mean to defend them in any way. We just don't think they're the real most important driver, as well, I will say. I mean, I also think they don't really work. The primary goals are to, you know, appropriately compensate patients who have um, suffered from negligent care and to, you know, weed out physicians that are providing negligent care, but our system doesn't do that. So even aside from those aspects, you know, um, reforming malpractice in itself is not going to help change the culture of overdiagnosis and overtreatment. Um, one, as we mentioned, that medical excess exists in other countries like New Zealand uh, where they have a no-fault system. Um, medical excess existed before the before malpractice became such a huge cultural fear. Right. Hemel can't personally attest to that, but unfortunately I can. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, in addition, they, uh, there have been changes in malpractice laws in various states in America. And while it may be too early to be definitive about their lack of impact, there certainly has been not even a, the whisper of an impact of getting rid of the threat of malpractice in various states. So again, we're not, we, we certainly don't mean to be apologists for what we think is a very bad malpractice system, but we don't think it's sufficient for the reasons that we just said. You so what do you think we need to change? Good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, you know, we can, we can start with some practical things. There's, um, I, I personally believe that engaging patients might be a first step towards this. So we talked mm -hmm. a little bit in our article about shared decision-making. And I might just add that one of the problems um, is not merely that we don't tell patients about uncertainty, but that I think many physicians don't tell themselves about it. Acknowledging it to ourselves is also tremendously important. And Hemel said the harm-benefit profile, and I'll, I'll make my usual comment about that, in most English um, idiom, people talk about risk-benefit. And it may have sounded a little bit um, jarring to hear him talk about harm-benefit, but in fact, harm and benefit are converse to each other. And risk and benefit are not. Risk is the possibility of harm. But when we say risk-benefit, we're talking about a possibility of harm as though the benefit was certain. I think it really reflects the fact that we think about this poorly. We think about commission in terms of things that we do, that they could cause harm, but they will have benefit. And in fact, that's of course not true. They could cause harm, they could be beneficial. And it's particularly ironic when we talk about things like screening tests, in terms of risk-benefit, when there is a small chance of harm, but there's a remotely small chance of benefit. For most screening tests, it takes hundreds of patients. The number needed to screen for one to benefit is in the hundreds or even in the many thousands. 
which means that the chance of benefit for any individual is minimal. But we don't talk about tiny chance of risk and tiny chance of benefit. Instead, we express it as though the benefit is certain. And again, this reflects uh, a thinking that we have to change. So we've touched on shared decision-making as a way to share this uncertainty with patients or acknowledge it at least. And we've said that perhaps doctors need to acknowledge um, this uncertainty. But what can doctors do? How, how, would, how would the medical profession change in terms of how it views uncertainty or, or deals with it? I think that right now there there is a culture in several different countries that you know we are trying to address this. For example, in America, um, the American Board of Internal Medicine has initiated a Choosing Wisely campaign where they have over 60 professional societies that have identified five low-value tests or procedures that um, that physicians in their society do. Um, I think that's a step in the right direction. Um, the UK has a do not do list that I think compiles almost a thousand similar procedures, tests. And again, while this doesn't directly touch on overcoming our intolerance of uncertainty, it, it um, does get at eliminating low value services that we provide. And I think it, you know, just to be fair, uh, we should acknowledge that this is, um, these are very small steps. And they're, they're very small steps, not because they're unimportant. And not because they don't have the right thing in mind, but because they actually, in some ways, just lead to confusion amongst the physicians. On the one hand, we tell them, you can never miss anything in our society. On the other hand, we tell them, don't do things. On the one hand, we tell them, be a steward of community resources. Don't just spend millions of dollars on all these tests. On the other hand, we say, your primary um, uh, goal is the patient in front of you. And worry about that patient. And my God, I can't afford to miss anything. So I personally believe that while these efforts are important and they do reflect the fact that we are starting to come to grips with this, I think we have to deal, we have to really first address in a much broader societal way some of the mythology that has become axiomatic in our larger culture, but which actually misleads us and does us harm. And again, I'd like to go back, uh, first of all, to a, perhaps a, a slightly uh, better uh, metaphor for what we're talking about. Imagine that you had an avalanche and there was one person buried in the snow. We, of course, want to save that person. But what if five people would die in the rescue attempt? Would it be worth it? We, we almost never asked that. And just to go on a little bit further, I talked about larger myths in our society. We have so ingrained into ourselves and into the culture that it, we, th they're doing us a lot of harm. Those include such things as earlier is better. Sometimes that might be true, but a lot of times it isn't, and it comes often at great cost. Knowledge is power. If you have an MRI scan, how could it hurt to know what the MRI scan shows? Helmut pointed out that it can cause enormous harm to find things. Knowledge is not power when either you don't know what to do with the knowledge or it leads only to harm. Um, technology is the answer. Uh, okay, uh, no matter how much experience I ha have, I could make a mistake, but 
this is an MRI scanner for, for heaven's sakes. It can't be wrong. Well, in truth, technology is neither good nor bad. How we use it is what's good or bad. And our belief that it will always do us good, actually, for all the reasons we talk about, um, leads to great harm. And there are there are many others that we could talk about. I like to say that in America, one of the overriding myths that I think is particularly problematic is the notion that death is optional. That is to say um, that if there's a bad outcome, it must have been a bad process. And now that we have all these tools, we should never have a bad outcome. Until we acknowledge to the public that we're not going to fix everything, that every path we take in this minefield could step on a mine. It's possible. Our job is to try to find the safest path, not the perfect path. Until we do that, I don't think any of these other things is going to be successful. I think it will take time. I'm a little bit more optimistic. I think there is starting to be a, a culture where we can focus on population-based health, which is what I think Jerry is getting at, you know, how do we provide the best care possible for the most amount of people possible? And with healthcare reform efforts like accountable care organizations right now in America, I think that the undertone of that is really how do we provide better care for our entire population here? And I think that's what you're talking about, Jerry. Yes, and I often hear the notion that, well, it may be true in terms of population medicine, that there's only one person out there we're going to find and benefit. But if you're that one person, don't you want it? If you're the one person who the screening test actually found the cancer and saved your life, how can we say no to that? And of course, I understand that. If I knew I was the one, I'd want it, of course. But we don't know. I might be one of the five who's hurt. And if overall we do more harm than good, it's not a good idea. Even though it would be a good idea for that one person, we have to take in mind what's good for all of us. Many thanks for joining us, Jerome and Hamill. And for those of you who are interested, their article, Intolerance of Error and Culture of Blame Drive Medical Excess, is now available to read under the analysis section on thebmj.com. <laughs>